All right, you may be seated. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter number 12. Luke chapter number 12. And we are going to begin this morning a brand new mini-series called Money Matters. I'll talk a little bit about that here in a minute. But as you find your place in Luke chapter number 12, I want to tell you about and, and bring you back in your minds to the Civil War. Uh, If you've read history, you know that in the Civil War, the North really thought that they were going to just trounce all over the South. They thought the war was going to be quick, but it only took a couple of months for the North to realize that if they wanted to win, they had to get their act together. They had to raise up a more disciplined fighting machine than they had before. And so in order to raise up an army with such discipline, And with such rigor, they needed a general that was known for that type of training. A general that was known to produce armies that were disciplined and capable of fighting. And so they hired for that task General George McClellan, as you see him on the screen. And he had a reputation. He could turn ordinary men, non-experienced fighters, into a disciplined machine of an army. In fact, many of us are familiar with the old hymn, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. You know that, that song? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Well, Julia Ward Howe, who is the author of that hymn, when she wrote that hymn, which is reflecting on the glories of the heavenly army and the Lord's coming, she wrote that actually observing a training exercise led by General George McClellan. So this guy was so good at leading an army that this lady thought of Christ leading his heavenly army as she watched his training exercise. And so as George McClellan is training them, she's thinking about this. And so they hired George McClellan to try and raise up a more strong northern army that could defeat the South in the Civil War. And so they place him over the army. And the the battle strategy at the time, if you're going to win the Civil War, the thought was for the North— that because the South was weak, they had less supply lines, they had less men, that the way that they would win the war is not just by winning one battle, but quickly regrouping and attacking again and again and again. But when they hired George McClellan, he amassed this army and he waited and waited and waited and waited some more. And in the middle of a war, George McClellan went six months without a major strike against the South. Six months he waited and just kept amassing troops when his commander-in-chief, of course, Lincoln, would ask him what he needed and why he wasn't attacking. He would simply reply back. He would say, I need more troops, more troops. Send us more. But something else was shifting in George McClellan's mindset that led to this lack of attack. If you read his private writings, you begin to realize that George McClellan over time slowly began to think that the army of the North was his army. He's quoted as saying this, the army of the Potomac is my army as much as any army ever belonged to the man that created it. I say it with the earnestness of a general who feels in his heart the loss of every brave man. I have seen too many dead 
and wounded comrades. His uniform said that George McClellan was serving the Union. But it seemed that he really thought that it was his own army. And everything finally came to a head when Lincoln removed George McClellan from his post as a general because after all, the point of being a general is to lead successful battles against the enemy. And the man hadn't done that for six months. And what we realized from George McClellan's story is that his failure as a general boils down to one thing. He embraced a false assumption that the army of men he led was his army. And because he thought it was his army, he lost sight that his job was to lead this army to serve the objective of his commander in chief. He forgot that it wasn't up to him to make all the decisions, that there was someone above him who had laid out what the strategy was for the war. And because he forgot it was, was not his army, he refused to deploy the troops in a way that the commander-in-chief had asked him to. I think that McClellan's attitude towards his troops sometimes represents the attitude that we all take towards our money. Like McClellan, we possess more than most people around the world would ever dream of. McClellan's army was huge by objective standards, but maybe like McClellan this morning, we've lost sight of why our commander-in-chief gave us those resources in the first place. Like I said this morning, we're going to start a mini-series called Money Matters. And the reason we're going to go through this series is, as a pastor, uh, you know it's pretty bad when you have church members telling you to preach on money because it's been a while, and that's kind of the situation we're in. I, I feel like money is such a big part of our lives that every once in a while, it's been two years, we need to clear off a spot and talk about what the Bible says about our money. Now, we could go a lot of different directions in this, and probably it would be good at some time for me to do a longer series to talk about all that the Bible says about our money. But what I want us to see throughout this series is I really want us to see what the title of the series is. Money Matters. Now, we could do a lot of series with that same title, right? Faith Matters. That's true. Doctrine Matters. Well, that's true too. Bible reading matters. Family Matters. But the reason that we are clearing off a spot to say that money matters is because I think, as American Christians in particular, it's very easy for us to segment our money from our spiritual lives. Specifically, it's easy for us to siphon off and section off our relationship to giving and generosity and, and to define spirituality by everything else under the sun except for that one thing. And I'm convinced from the Bible that what we do with our money matters. It matters because Jesus said this, that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying that there is a connection between our heart, our innermost being and where we allocate our resources. And so we need to make sure as people who uh, have resources, and I would say in 21st century America, have more 
than historically has been common and certainly more than is common even in our world today, we need to make sure that if we have been given treasures and our heart is connected to those in some way, that we are putting our heart in the right places because money matters. Each week, we're gonna have one central truth we cover that we could phrase this way, money matters because. And here's the one we're gonna cover this morning. Money matters because our money is actually his money. I'm gonna say that again. Money matters because our money is actually his money. Let's say that together one time. Money matters to God because our money is actually his money. I want us to see this in a story in Luke chapter number 12 Jesus actually, it's funny, he's teaching about the end times, you know, the things that most of you really want to get into. And it's right as he's teaching about these end time things that someone interrupts and wants Jesus to settle a financial dispute over an inheritance. And Jesus gives us a story about a man who had a bumper crop. And he helps us see through the story the difference between an ownership mindset with our money and a management mindset with our money. So I want us to read the text in Luke 12, and then I want us to see three traits that help us see whether we have an ownership mindset with our money or a manager mindset with our money. Look at Luke chapter 12, and let's begin our reading in verse number 13. And one of the company said to him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. That'd be a good problem, right? He says, and he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? And listen to Jesus' last words, which are not part of the story. It's his conclusion from the story. Look at verse 21. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I want you to see three contrasts in this parable to help us see whether we're owners or managers of the money that is actually God's money. Here's the first principle I think that Jesus' story shows us. It shows us that owners think they create their wealth. Managers recognize God gave them their wealth. And the story starts off actually with some good news. In verse number 16, here's this man, and he has a good year, a good financial bumper crop. And if Jesus were telling the story for 
you know, upper middle class Americans, he could have very well worded it differently. Maybe for some who were in ag, you know, he'd talk about a bumper crop. For some of us, he would say that we closed a big deal. We got a big performance bonus. Our boss gave us a substantial raise. We received a good-sized inheritance. Or maybe for some of you, in a couple months, you received a big tax return. And now that that big amount of money, that extra money is coming in, here's this man, and he has a dilemma. He has a dilemma. But what I want you to notice before I get to his dilemma is that we see that this man, very subtly, Jesus points out that he takes the credit for the bumper crop that he received. Notice verse number 16, very carefully. In verse number 16, what is given the credit for the big produce? The ground. It says that the ground of a certain man brought forth plentifully, but then it says in verse number 16 that he asks himself, what shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? He seems to take the credit for the increase in his income rather than giving credit ultimately to God who is the one who is the Lord of the harvest. Now, some of you are involved in agriculture or really all of us were around agriculture enough. You drive by it, you see it. And I think anyone in here who's involved in agriculture has been around it would know that there's a lot of things that farmers, you know, try to mitigate concerns with the weather. There's a lot of things you could do, herbicides and all that stuff. Uh, equipment, uh, down, mi- minimizing downtime in the harvest, things like that. But at the end of the day, as a farmer, there are certain factors you can't control, right? And so at the end of the day, any crop in agriculture ultimately, ultimately is the product of God's goodness. I think that's why so many people in agriculture, it's a given fact that God is sovereign and he is big and he is powerful because they see it every day out there on the farms and on the pastures. But what we often think about when it comes to our money and where we go astray is that just like this rich man, we are tempted to give ourselves too much credit for the harvest we receive. And and I'll be honest this morning, it's natural for us to take credit, isn't it? It, It's just how our mind goes. Because let's be honest, if you didn't show up to work, you wouldn't get a paycheck. Now, if you have a job that you don't have to show up to get a paycheck, let me know about it, okay? Because that sounds like a good deal. But most of us, I think, we've got to show up to make money, right? Unless it's tomorrow's blizzard, you hope to the Lord you don't have to show up, right? And so we have to show up to make money. And so naturally our mind says, okay, I deserve some credit for this, right? You maybe, you could look back on your life and you are the one who went and got some education. You are the one who built up your resume. You are the one that made a difference in that previous job and were able to get a better job because of what you did there. You are the one that put in the hard hours during a busy season at work and that's why the paycheck is bigger. And so there is a degree, certainly in God's economy, that we earn what we have. We'll talk about this next week, but the Bible says that the diligent are made rich. So the Bible doesn't throw down someone's character because they're rich. The Bible actually says generally diligence is what leads to riches. Good hard work leads to riches. And all the parents and grandparents said amen to that. But at the same time, what we need to recognize this morning is that there is a degree that you are given what you have. 
You may have built your resume, got that degree, built that job, made that sale, built that company, but all of us, no matter what industry you're in, we all have to step back for a moment this morning and recognize that there is a, an intangible element of our income that we are not ultimately in control of. We ultimately don't get the credit for it. We are given what we have. We are not owners. No, a better way to think about you and I and our relationship with money is we're not owners of our money. We are managers of money God gave to us on loan. Because at the end of the day, whether you're a little rich, and we'll define rich next week. Some of us use that word probably incorrectly. Whether you have a little bit of extra money or you have enough to build another barn like this guy did, you and I have to recognize that it is God who richly blesses us with all things to enjoy. We have to recognize, as the Bible says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. We have to recognize, like we, like we talked about last week, that it is God who feeds you like he feeds the sparrow. It is God who clothes you like he clothes the lilies. It is God who made sure that you had the health to go to your job this year. It is God who made sure you had the breath to wake up tomorrow morning. It is God who made sure your company stayed afloat and it didn't close because of the economy. It's God who made sure that you invested in the stocks and in his providence, you made a return on those investments. All of that credit goes to God. And when we recognize that at the end of the day, if we're just honest with ourselves, we are given what we have. We are given it. Yes, we may be given it in response to our diligence, but what we have, we do not take the credit for. We are given it to by God, and that means we are not owners of our money. We are managers of God's money. And here's the truth about being a manager, and many of you know this. When you are a manager, not an owner, you don't have the final say, right? Some of you manage companies that you don't own, you manage a bank that you don't own, you manage an office that you are not ultimately the CEO of. And so what happens when you're a manager and not an owner, yes, you make some decisions, you have some uh, free will to use your discernment because you're on the ground running. At the end of the day, though, if you're a manager, you answer to the owner. You are to make decisions that reflect the owner's interest in those resources. Some of you, you have a retirement advisor. You have somebody who uh, handles your investments to make sure that when you retire, there's poof, there's still money in that account, right? And what that retirement advisor has to do is he has to see what you want for your retirement portfolio, how much risk you're willing to handle, and it's his job to handle your money in a way that you would be happy with, even if you're not making every tiny little decision. And what this parable tells us is that the same is true for our money. When we recognize that all of our income is a gift from God, ultimately that he gets the credit for it, then what we see in the parable is that the biggest mistake this guy made was that he thought he could make his own decisions with it without checking with the owner. And we see his internal dialogue in verse number 17, don't we? Look at verse 17 of chapter number 12. And he thought within himself, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits or my crops. And so he decides, I'm, uh, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna tear down my little barn. I need a bigger one. Well, there's no moral problem with that, okay? That's not Jesus's 
you know, issue with this guy. It's not that you need to spend everything you receive. That's not the point of the parable. But what we find is that in this process, I want you to notice what pronouns are most prominent in verses 17 through 18. What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. Do you see his mistake? Here's the second principle. That owners use their wealth for their enjoyment, but managers use their money for God's purposes. Here's this man's fundamental mindset. When increase comes, he is consulting simply with himself. What do I do? What do I want? What is my decision? Should I invest in my business? Should I contribute to my Roth IRA? And he says, he makes the conclusion with himself. He's his chief counselor. I will say to my soul, verse number 19, soul, and then he tells, tells himself, you know, he's a weird guy who talks to, him, talks to himself. But ultimately, when he's trying to decide what happens with this money, ultimately the decision is this. What do I want to do? Not once in this man's thinking, think about this. Not once did it cross his mind. What does God want me to do? Not once did it cross his mind. What would honor God the best? No, ultimately in his thinking, the way he wanted to make his decision was simply up to him and that's all that matter. He thought his problem was how do I allocate this surplus? But what Jesus reveals to us is that the man's real problem was not what should he do with his money. The man's real problem was what should he do with his greed? Now some of us, here's how we would define greed. We would say greedy people are people who are always chasing after money. And I think that's true, but I don't think it gets to the heart of the issue. I think Jesus would define greed this way. That greed is the assumption that everything placed in our hands is for our consumption. That greed is the assumption that every increase we receive is simply for our benefit. Now, I'll, I'll show you next week from 1 Timothy 6 that there is a sense in which God gives us things to enjoy. That's not a bad thing. And I'll, talk, I'll hit on that very specifically next week. So if you want to hear me out a little bit more on this, come back next week. But what we need to recognize this morning is that greed is ultimately the attitude that says, everything I've received is from me. That I just have to check with me, or maybe just my spouse. That I get to make the final decision about this, and I'm the only one who's in charge of where this money goes. That is the same fatal mistake that this man made. That's a tough pill to swallow because in American culture, number one, it's already a little bit weird when a preacher's talking to you about money because we view money very privately. It's our money. Well, it's definitely not my money. It is your money more than my money, but it's ultimately, as we talked about, it's God's money. Now, you might be here saying, well, Pastor Mike, are you saying I can't enjoy my money, it's wrong for me. Do I need to live the lifestyle of a pauper so I can just give it all away? No, 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 no. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter number five, verses 18 through 19. The richest man in the world actually said this. He said, 
It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which, what's the next three words? God giveth him. It is his portion. What Solomon is saying there is that it is okay for us to enjoy what God has given us. First Timothy 6 says the same thing. But then he also says this in a few verses prior. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. See, the danger, the danger is not just having extra. What the Bible shows us continually again and again is when we take too much of an ownership mindset and we think all of our extra is for all of our enjoyment and we never think to check with God and say, I've met my needs. How much God should I spend on my enjoyment and how much should I spend on something else? The question we have to ask ourselves this morning is this, how does God want you to use the money that he gives you? What I want to encourage you with this morning is that when you think about your money, to rearrange or to arrange the way you spend your money, not based on your instincts or your emotions or even just your wants, but to rearrange how you spend your money based on biblical principles. Now, I don't have time to cover all these, and some of them we'll revisit in future weeks. But think about this. I think at a baseline, God wants you to use your money to provide for your needs. Can we all agree with that? But the Bible actually says it's wrong for a man not to provide for his family. That's how important it is. That's what God gives us money for at the outset, is to feed what I need, my wife needs, my kids need, to put shelter over our heads, and uh, all the basic necessities that one needs to take care of, to pay the bills, not to be in gross amounts of debt and all of that stuff. That's why God, first of all, gives me my money, his money. But the Bible also tells us that, and it teaches us that wisdom says that we do need to save for the future. There's many Proverbs about that. So what Jesus is condemning this parable is not saving for the future. I would encourage you, if some of you who need to be preparing for retirement, some of you are already there, put aside 15% of your money into a retirement account. That's kind of the standard that's out there. Think about and, and be assessing where your money is going to be when you retire so that rather than being a beggar then, you can live like no one else now so you can live like no one else later. So we use our money to save for the future. The Bible says that's wise. The Bible says that uh, we use our money to enjoy God's gracious provision. I don't think, personally, that it's wrong for someone who has an upper-class income to enjoy an upper-class lifestyle. I don't think that's wrong. We, uh, I've talked about this in previous sermons, that it seems that there are plenty of people in the Bible who had more when God gave them more. I don't think God ever criticized David for having a big house. It wasn't an issue. He didn't criticize um, Abraham for having a bunch of flocks. It wasn't an issue. So there is a degree with our excess that we can enjoy God's gracious provision, right? But the Bible also teaches us 
that we shouldn't waste our money on frivolous things. And I could get more specific than that. You know what's frivolous. And some people define that differently than others. The Bible tells us to generously give to the Lord's work and to those in need. And the Bible tells us to uh, be a blessing to other people. And we'll talk about that in future weeks. But at the end of the day, we need to ask, how does God want me to spend his money? Because greed is the assumption that all of my money is placed into my hands for my consumption. Here's the last and probably the most uh, stinging point of Jesus' parable. Owners think their wealth will last. Managers recognize that their wealth is temporary. One of the cardinal sins of this man in the parable is that he thought his future was in his control. He thought the only way he needed to prepare for the future was with his money. So he had plans for his money. But his plans for his money were earthly plans. That's why Jesus says in verse number 21, this is the key point of the parable, that this man was rich toward, he laid up treasure for himself, but he was not rich toward God. What the man did on a surface level seems shrewd and and very savvy business-wise. Build bigger barns, right? Stock up, get ready. There's nothing morally wrong with what he did there. But what the real issue of this parable is, is that this man thought that his long-term security was vested in his money. He thought that his only issue he needed to worry about in the future was that he had enough income to supply his needs. And when he had so much that he could actually sit back and basically retire, verse number 19. His life took a turn that revealed to him that our ultimate security is not found in things money can buy. He died in his youth and not in his old age. And what we see from this parable is that you and I can manage our money down to the T the and the I's of how God wants us to use it. We can be careful with our spending. We can invest in the future. We can give generously. We can save. We can um, manage different things. We can make sure we take what's little and grow it into more. But at the end of the day, you can have millions of dollars in the bank or you can have $2 in the bank when your life is over it won't matter what you have in the bank. That lasting security is not purchased with fleeting treasures. Friends, I ask you, how could this man have secured his soul? If his riches didn't secure his soul, what did he need to do to secure his soul? Well, in order to secure his soul, he needed to entrust his soul to the only one who could save him. And so at a fundamental level, what Jesus is saying is that to be rich in this world, but to be broke when it comes to the riches of heaven is in the end to be a failure. That you could have all the riches of this world, but you'll spend a whole lot more time in eternity. 
And those who do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, who've not repented of their sins and trusted in the finished and perfect work of Christ to save them from their sins, they can build the biggest barns one could possibly imagine, but it will not save them from the consequences that will come upon every sinful soul. But Jesus is also teaching us this, that if we recognize that the money we stash into barns won't go with us to heaven. Maybe we should ask another question. Where can I put my money that will have a lasting impact beyond my lifetime? Where can I put my money that will have a lasting impact beyond my lifetime? There's a lot of things we spend money on that if we were to die tomorrow, it wouldn't really matter, right? I love our home. I love the cars God's blessed us with. I have great stories about both of them, how God just miraculously blessed us with those vehicles. But at the end of the day, I ain't taking my 2008 Lincoln Mark LT to heaven. It'd be kind of cool, but I'm not, right? I'm not taking my house to heaven. I've got a mansion, actually. I mean, it's a lot better. It's probably gonna be an upgrade, I think. And so friends, what we need to recognize, sometimes we get so focused on the next toy, the next thing, the next, you know, glittering treasure. Upgrade the lifestyle here. None of that's wrong. But I'm saying that this parable pushes us to think about where can we invest our money, our wealth that is lasting? Where can we invest our money that will last longer than our lifetimes? The Bible says that it's the glory of a father to leave an inheritance towards his children's children. That's money that lasts beyond your lifetime. Jesus tells us to lay up our treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. That means investing our money in eternal causes and the salvation of eternal souls because you and I will die, our earthly investments will fade away, but those who've received the gospel as the work of the gospel has been funded, those things will last forever. That's why as a church, in the month of February, we're gonna focus on global missions because here's what we believe. The best investment we can make with our money, if we have extra, is to invest it in eternal souls in England, in Colombia, in Mozambique, in all these different places and invest in workers going over there declaring the gospel to people who don't have the option of driving to five gospel preaching churches in a five minute radius. No. One of the best investments we can make with our money is investing and taking the gospel to people who will never hear it apart from our missionaries. To invest in God's work here. To invest in things that will last beyond our lifetime because when you recognize that the giver of your money is God, you'll recognize he gets all the credit. He gets all the credit. Hey, I rejoice with you if you've been successful in your area of business, man, I'm so thrilled. If your boss or your company's rewarded that, if your long years of diligence have rewarded that, that you're in your 40s and 50s and making more money than you could have possibly dreamed of in your 20s, hey, I rejoice with you at that. That's a blessing. But recognize today that that would have never happened apart from God. It would have never happened apart from God. And when you recognize that, you have to ask another question. If God gave me this money, how does he want me to use it? Because it's not my money. It's his money. And if I want to use my money for things 
that will last beyond my lifetime, I'm going to invest them in the kingdom. I'm going to invest them in the future because I recognize that I can lay out all these plans, but just like this man in verse number 20, my life could be gone like that. And my comforts and my treasures on this earth, as good as they are, and as a small, small token of what they will be pointing us to our future heavenly home and the blessings and the riches and the rest that will be there, they ain't coming with us. So this morning, what I want you to recognize, I want you to recognize that how you handle your money matters because your money is actually his money. We are not owners who are called simply to accumulate. We are managers that are called to invest our dollars in a way that pleases our master. And so this morning, what I want you to do is respond to God's word maybe in two different ways or three different ways. Number one, I want you to ask yourself, what would happen to your soul if you met the same fate this man met in verse 20? Are you sure that your soul is secure? Because the truth is, we can have everything secure on earth and everything stable on earth, but our soul may not be ready to meet its master. For many, I think for all of us, we need to worship and thank God for his good provision in our lives. I know some of you are like, man, I wish I could have a little bit more. Life would just be easier, and that's probably true. Man, you could certainly have less, couldn't you? You could certainly have less than you do now, and so we must worship and thank God as the source of your provision. Maybe you can look back on this last year, 2023, and say, man, I can look at that blessing and that bonus and that increase and that sustaining through that difficult financial time, and I can look at all that and say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. And then I think all of us, we need to evaluate. Am I using my money in a way that pleases its owner? Am I managing it in a way that honors God? And maybe for some of us, there are some things that we need to repent of or change or rearrange because the reality is that we cannot use God's money God's way until we recognize we are not an owner, we are a manager. Let's spend some time responding to God's word this morning. This would be a good time for you to word a prayer of gratitude to your heavenly Father who has richly provided all things for you to enjoy. He's entrusted you. Think about the responsibility. If you have a lot, you, you could think something like this. Oh my, God, I don't know why you would trust me, but thank you that you trust me to handle this.